this episode of Modern Practice, we'll continue our discussions about the unique challenges of cardiac surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations at Quality at Vizian and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Rachel Mack, RN, Consulting Director in Clinical Documentation Improvement at Vizian. Rachel, welcome back. Thank you so much, Tom. Happy to be back again. So in the last episode, we talked about the challenges involved with cardiac procedures and their patients. So what makes cardiac surgery patients difficult for CDI specialists and coders? Oh my goodness, so many of these patients have chronic fill-in-the-blank heart failure at their baseline, right? It is well-controlled in the outpatient space. They're on medications, their weight's controlled, everything's following a low-salt diet, everything's great. We take them to cardiac surgery, and basically that's the match that lights the fire. And postoperatively, they have significant issues with heart failure. So the thing is, again, another reason that cardiac surgery patients are interesting most cardiac surgery patients are going to receive a whiff of Lasix postoperatively. It doesn't mean they're in an exacerbation. We are basically giving them this medication to get a little fluid off of them and to prevent that exacerbation. When you start looking at a patient who's getting three, four, five, six, or BID or TID, 20, 40, 60, 80 milligrams of Lasix, or goodness forbid, they are started on a Lasix drip, that is when you should be querying for that exacerbation of heart failure. So another comment, again, this card came up a little bit, so I won't spend too much time on this, but arrhythmias that occur post-cardiac surgery. Some super common ones that are honestly a lot of the time only documented by nurses is VTAC. So CDSs, be on the lookout. What you'll see is at three in the morning, the alarms are going crazy. They print a strip. They've got a 5, 10, 50 beat run of VTAC. They page the physician. Nine times out of 10, the physician says, eh, just watch it. Watch and wait, see what happens. But that's still monitoring. That's still treatment. And I find that cardiac surgeons really don't tend to bring that documentation into that next note. So that would just be a, hey, doc, the nurse documented this. Can you please confirm this? And typically they agree with you. I'm going from head to toe. So I hope everybody can hear that. So another rare, uncommon uh, complication of cardiac surgery is what's called cardiac tamponade. This is a frightening, horrifying situation and incident when it happens. In my time in the CVICU, I only experienced this, I think it was three times. And what it typically leads to is an open chest situation at the bedside while they are scrambling to get this patient back to the OR. It is horrifying. So those of you that don't know, cardiac tamponade, this is when that very thin layer of fluid around your heart gets filled with fluid. This is a paper thin layer that really doesn't have a lot of room for the fluid it already has. And your heart starts to basically get compressed upon. This is a medical emergency. It must be treated. These patients have to go back to the OR. They do not have good outcomes. And in 2023, crazy statement. This condition is only a CC in our lovely ICD-10 coding. Really? Don't even get me started, Tom. You know how I feel about these conditions. Wow. Okay. I think a lot of people have actually petitioned for it to be an MCC for a long time, but it is still, and I have no idea why, it is still ACC. So that's a rare event. When this is actively occurring, I've never had to query for it. Physicians, surgeons are very good at documenting this condition when it occurs. Just be on the lookout for a multitude of other documentation opportunities related to this. Because once a patient experiences this, they've officially at this point gone back to the OR, not once, but twice, right? Once for the main surgery and twice to go fix this. They are at risk for a buku of conditions and under-documented, under-captured things. 
Some other conditions, some common conditions are, I call it renal stuff, right? Our patients with CAD, with hypertension, with all the things, a lot of them have CKD stage two, three, four, five, or they have end stage disease. So if you are unclear, if you're reviewing that record, maybe they didn't have a good HMP or it was done in another facility and your EMRs don't connect or something like that, make sure you get that documented because that is a risk driver for almost every single methodology out there. And then our patients, either whether they have CKD or not, again, this surgery is really, really hard on a human being's body. And your renals are the one of the first things to go. They're easy, right? They can't really take a beating like your liver and some other things can. So definitely be on the lookout for those elevated creatinines and that treatment with IV fluid postoperatively. And if it fixes within two, three days, that's an acute renal failure. Again, query for it if you need to. If this gets worse and worse and worse and their creatinine keeps rising and we get nephro involved, we're doing IV fluid challenges, we're doing Lasix, we're doing dialysis, that might be an acute tubular necrosis. And physicians are terrible at documenting that. I would definitely vary for that and say, hey, this seems to be worse than just an acute renal failure. The other thing, just to bring this up, is there is a patient safety indicator. It's PSI 10. It's called post-operative acute kidney injury requiring dialysis. If your patient is an elective patient and develops this in the post-operative space and they get diagnosed with acute renal failure and require dialysis, boom, they are going to fall into patient safety indicator 10. And if I may, Rachel, this is actually one of the most common PSI 10s that are out there and probably one of the best ones to improve it. Absolutely. And the bummer about this one, it's really hard to get out of. There's not a whole lot of exclusions. The exclusions for this PSI are... I hate to say dumb, (laughs) but they're things like cardiogenic shock present on admission. No elective patient is going to have cardiogenic shock present on admission. So unless they have CKD5 or end-stage renal disease or something like that, this is really, really hard to get out of. I noticed you left out acute respiratory failure. Why? Oh, you noticed that, did you? That I didn't bring up any type of respiratory condition. So I left it out. I'm kind of really glad you asked that because I wanted to talk about it separately. So One of the things with cardiac surgery is it is an expectation for your patient to require to be intubated during the surgery and to be on mechanical ventilation. It is also absolutely normal for patients, again, to roll into the ICU postoperatively and require mechanical ventilation for, I'd say, up to six hours after surgery. We're hoping to get them extubated before that. But again, this is totally normal. The thing is, is some providers think that they have to document a medical diagnosis in order to express the severity of why the patient needs that mechanical ventilation, even though it's kind of an assumed part. I don't want to call it a bundle because a bundle in healthcare is a totally different thing, but it's kind of an assumed part of the cardiac surgery bundle. So a provider will document acute respiratory failure patient on the vent doing well. What happens is if this is documented, as acute post-procedural respiratory failure in an elective patient, that could capture PSI 11 when these patients are not in fact in respiratory failure. We've put them in the situation, we've put allowed this condition to happen because they need to be intubated and ventilated for surgery. So if your patient really doesn't do well after surgery, we can't get them off the vent either because they have comorbid conditions at their baseline, or again, they just don't do well post-operatively. Maybe they do have an acute post-procedural respiratory failure. However, if your patient is following the pathway, they are extubated within, let's say, three hours after surgery to three liters of oxygen, they're having no respiratory issues, that is not an acute respiratory failure. 
So, Rachel, what about Tavers and heart failure? Oh, boy. Well, you just asked the question of the year. (laughs) So I am not going to pretend that Vizient is the end-all, be-all of knowledge bearers and owners of Tavers and heart failure. We are not. But we have heard very interesting and often conflicting information across the country. And I think that this is a good enough time as any to talk about it, Tom. So we've heard some surgeons, I've heard from the horse's mouth, some surgeons and some physicians say that patients that require a TAVR are essentially living in an ongoing exacerbation of their heart failure. So they feel more than compelled to document that they are in a heart failure exacerbation. We've heard other physicians, other surgeons say, I would never take a patient to the OR if I thought they were in a flagrant exacerbation of their CHF. It's terrible and it's chronic, but it's currently controlled. So we have heard absolutely opposing opinions about this. I think the biggest takeaway here for CDI specialists on the call, for coders on the call, for any physicians, providers on the call, the biggest takeaway is treatment and monitoring. If you've got a patient coming in and they are not an elective surgery, and they roll in off the street, they've been sick for a while, they're getting worked up for surgery, they go to surgery, they require IV Lasix before and after surgery and have other signs and symptoms of heart failure, by all means, they are in an acute exacerbation of their heart failure and to please document that. And just make sure again, if you're a physician or provider listening to this, document whether it's with preserved EF or reduced EF or systolic or diastolic, it's up to you. However, on the flip side, if this is an elective surgery, if they come in well-managed when it comes to their heart failure, and they are not requiring a ton of IV Lasix postoperatively or any preoperatively, I personally don't think it's appropriate to document or diagnose a patient with an exacerbation of their heart failure if they're not looking like an exacerbation of their heart failure. The other thing is too, most of these TAVR cases are one-day stays sometimes less than that. Sometimes they are in and out. If the team is not doing any additional treatment, monitoring, or workup for this patient's heart failure, and all they're getting is their PO Lasix on discharge, then again, I really don't think that it's accurate to diagnose these patients with an exacerbation of their heart failure. So I think the big takeaway here is it's really all about treatment. What does the patient look like when they come in the door? What do they look like intraoperatively and any complications they have? What do they look like postoperatively? And really assign and diagnose the patient with the best version of the heart failure that they have at that point in their stay. Okay. The other thing I want to mention too, just for those listening, the word acute heart failure, that really should only be used the first time a patient ever goes into that first flagrant heart failure episode for that inpatient stay. The rest of the time, if they've got an established chronic systolic, chronic diastolic heart failure, they are going into an exacerbation. So it's not an acute CHF. If they experience that postoperatively, it's an exacerbation. What are some of the disqualifying MCCs? Okay. I'm really glad you brought that up because this is just a very strange topic in CDI encoding in general, and it's super easy to forget. So There are a handful of major comorbid conditions or MCCs that if the patient dies, if they expire during that stay, and you have to assign that expired status of 20 in your encoder. When we add these to our encoder, to our group or whatever you're using, which we should, if patients have any of these conditions that I'm about to discuss, we should be adding these. We can add them all we want. They will not count as an MCC, you will notice that the DRG doesn't change. And those conditions, and they're pretty limited, but those conditions are cardiac arrest, 
due to underlying cardiac condition, cardiac arrest due to other underlying condition, cardiac arrest unspecified, V-fib, respiratory arrest, cardiogenic shock, hypovolemic shock, and other shock. And again, the takeaway should not be, oh, since it's not an MCC, I'm not going to code it anyway. This is still potentially able to contribute to some risk adjustment methodologies. And again, if a patient's experiencing this and they die, we definitely want to get these conditions documented to make sure they're accurate. Rachel, is there anything else we need to know about cardiac surgery patients and CDI? The biggest takeaway is that these patients demand a thorough review of their record, especially the patients that are here longer than the GMLOS of their DRG. So if you've got a cardiac surgery patient who is elective, who rolled in, didn't have a heart cath, and went to this planned surgery, and their length of stay is getting past four, five, six, seven days, something is going on. Make sure you're reviewing that record in-depthly so that you identify any opportunity for documentation improvement. The other important thing, last thing to know about these cardiac surgery patients, unfortunately, most of these DRGs only shift with an MCC. Doesn't mean it's not important to pick up CCs and any risk-adjusted diagnoses. Absolutely not. We should definitely be doing that. But it's just kind of annoying from a CDI encoding perspective to know that these DRGs really only shift with big kahuna diagnoses like metabolic encephalopathy, toxic encephalopathy, acute respiratory failure, severe protein calorie malnutrition, all those things. And sometimes those can be difficult to find. They're just not appropriate because the patient isn't experiencing them. But probably the most common one, the common MCC for these patients is going to be either that heart failure exacerbation or some type of specified shark. Rachel, great discussion. And to our listeners, you can contact Rachel at her email address in the research section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast at visionink.com. We've posted the link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. And now I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.